This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your DOB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Right, coming up on today's episode, trust in the police has collapsed. More than half of people say they have no confidence in the police in dealing with crime. And there's also been the avalanche of allegations and convictions against serving police officers for committing terrible crimes. Coming up on today's episode, I've been out with the police in South London to find out what it's really like answering 999 calls. And I've been speaking to Sir Mark Rowley, the Metropolitan Commissioner, about his plans to turn his force around. Really fascinating interview coming up with him. Before that, as ever, we take a look at the news with today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning this morning to uh, Conservative commentator uh, Tim Montgomery. Hi, Tim. Good morning, good morning, good morning. <laughs> good morning to you. And uh, from the eye, Jane Merrick. Hi, Jane. Hello. Uh, slightly less cheery, cheery, Jane. Do we not get a jingle, Matt? I was looking forward to some sort of jingle. We, to, uh, well, you've, got to be, you've got to be regulars for that. We can't, you know, we, we, don't have a, we don't have jingle singers on standby. More's the pity. <sighs> The show would be insufferable if it was, if I could just say, yeah, could you just sing another jingle now? Um, anyway, it's nice to have you both here. Now, uh, let's talk about uh, overnight, uh, actually earlier than it was expected, this happened. The eyes to the right, 292. The nose to the left, 215. Oh, Huge cheers, huge cheers in the Lords, in the Commons last night, as finally uh, Rishi Sunak's illegal uh, migration bill uh, passed the Commons, is off to become law. Uh, is he any closer to actually stopping the boats, Tim? Uh, probably not, because the key factor, I think, is the courts. And we wait for the Supreme Court to make its decision on the government's long delayed attempt to support the first person to Rwanda. And to be honest, Matt, I wonder whether the government slightly has mixed views about the passage of this legislation. They don't really have excuses now other than that court judgment. I think they quite fancied in a way if Labour and others had blocked this legislation, blaming lefty lawyers and such like for a 
for a policy that's going to be very difficult to solve, even with the passage of this legislation. Um, it's an interesting point, that, Jay. That, that, um, now it's all down to the courts. And if uh, that gets through the, 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 the Supreme Court and they are allowed to send people to Rwanda, it's then just a waiting game to see if the number of people trying to cross the channel goes down. Yeah, and absolutely. There's um, a really good graph, actually, in the Times today showing the number of people crossing on small boats has been going up every year since 2022 and it's 2021 and it's rising all the time I mean, I think what Rishi Sunak really wants at the end of term is a few wins he's not going to get any wins on Thursday in the by-election so this is obviously a win for him that he's got this through um, the Lords after two months I think of battle but as you say it's going to be really hard to get round the courts as Tim was saying um, it's going to go to the Supreme Court and his pledge to stop the small boats is going to be in tatters if he can't deliver on that um on that rwanda policy which is incredibly problematic i mean it's been it's been a policy of the tory government for more than a year and they still can't get it through the courts so it looks good i think it's kind of a window dressing moment that rishi sunak can say he's achieving something on migration but actually what does it really mean if he can't effectively deliver his policy. And Tim, the thing about this policy is that it's the most retail, user-friendly, public can understand it of all the policies, because reducing debt or or growth or uh, even halving inflation, nobody really knows what that means. And if he delivered it, it wouldn't make any difference to your, your day-to-day uh, experience. Whereas there's clearly huge public concern about the number of people who are coming here, whether that's from a, a sort of immigration point of view and, and the sheer numbers or the risks that people are taking to cross the channel. And if you can't deliver on this one in particular, saying, oh, yes, but we are technically moving in the right direction on in inflation is probably isn't going to cut the mustard politically. No, and I sometimes wonder whether the left hand of this government knows what the right hand is doing. You know, he went, uh, Rishi Sunak announced recently that there was progress on small boats. That somehow, you know, the tide was moving in the right direction. But a friend of mine who runs some, uh, you know, residential accommodation, and on that same day that Rishi Sunak was boasting of progress, the Home Office was booking extra places in the residential property. So if you look at what the government is saying and what it's actually thinking, they're two different things. I think they know this summer is going to be very difficult. And even if there is some limited progress, you know, back to your point, Matt, the idea that people are breaking into this country, which is how a lot of voters see it, offends the conservative idea that border protection, defence of the realm, is the first job of any government. So he has to attempt to solve this problem, but I don't think he's going to really have the extent of progress that the public are going to notice. And does it make any difference that the barges arrive, Jane? <laughs> I think, again, it's another... It, it looks... It's good for on telly for his government. I mean, it's kind of... It looks like incredibly grim barge to house people and it just looks like a shipping container. I think it's actually going to um, fuel a lot of concern amongst um, asylum groups. But for him, I guess, it's a, it, it will look good on TV. Um, and it, yeah, it looks like there's progress. But I mean, I think also kind of Labour are slightly letting the government get away with their immigration policy because they're not really coming up with a clear alternative. So I think as we kind of run down now to the next election, there isn't much definition that Labour can create on asylum. So even if they are, even if Rishi Sunak is failing on his migration policy, what are Labour 
offering as an alternative. They're saying that they will stop the Rwanda policy, but they don't really have much of a, an alternatively strong retail policy to say we're going to do this about small boats. I think they're talking about tackling the problem in France and also tackling the problem on a humanitarian level, which is such a huge issue. You can't solve that in one term. Well, in fact, let's move on and talk about uh, the, the challenges facing Keir Starmer. He's under fire from all sides today. Uh, for uh, those from the left complaining about his his policy that he's saying he wouldn't remove the two-child benefit cap, which means you can't, whether you're in work or out of work, claim benefits for more than two children. Having lots of front pages, people said it was uh, uh, heinous and uh, irresponsible. Owen Jones, remember him? Uh, I didn't realise he was still going. Uh, he's called him Sir Kid Starver. Which is very good. Uh, but right into to the rescue today with a sort of centrist dad's gathering. Uh, 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 Tony Blair has got a conference today uh, called The Future of Britain. It really has got all the centrist dads there. It makes uh, Glastonbury look positively radical. Uh, this is what he was saying when his, the event kicked off this morning. The British state is unsustainable. We are spending more than ever before in British history, except in times of crisis or war, and taxing more with poor outcomes. Waiting lists trebled since 2010. Crimes leading to a charge, a third of what they were even in 2015. This generation, half as likely as the last to be homeowners by the age of 30. And two million children in receipt of free school meals, and that's a third above the long-term average. Now, all our competitors, it's true, have seen falls in growth and productivity since the financial crisis. But Britain has fallen most. So quite good at laying out the scale of the challenge there, Jane. Um, crucially for a Labour government hoping to replace a, a tired Conservative government, um, the biggest problem is we're already taxes are already very high, and there's still not enough money. Yeah, and actually, it's 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 interesting to hear Tony Blair because obviously what he inherited in '97 was a fairly um, benign economic climate compared to what Starmer will likely inherit next year. I mean, I think it's really difficult that, you know, Keir Starmer's obsession with discipline and focus, and the same goes for Rachel Reeves, they're trying really hard to show that they've got the economic credibility and they're trying not to scare anybody by making uncosted promises. But I think you can sort of focus group a party to death and to, to build, to win an election, you need to have a coalition of voters. And it's not just going to be about the people who the Labour Party lost to the Tories in 2019. You have to keep your own voters, your core voters with you. And I think sort of this refusal to scrap the, the, the two child benefit child benefit policy benefit policy is it just feels too like they don't have a soul anymore. They don't really have a heart and soul that they can take to the electorate. You can you can say okay, we've got to be so careful, we've got to be so cautious, we've got to be so disciplined. But what are the part, What are the electorate actually going to vote for in 2024 if it's, no, if it's very similar to the Conservatives? And I think it's fine to listen to Tony Blair, but he won an election in 1997. It's a completely different country now. Um, Blair often comes up with a sort of a good recipe for what's wrong with the country. But where is the soul from Keir Starmer? And I think a lot of Labour voters and a lot of Conservative voters even will be will be thinking there isn't really much to him apart from discipline. And it has to be more than that. And also, actually, uh, Tim, you know, he defined himself mostly initially in the minds of the public as being not Boris Johnson. You know, he's not uh, Boris Johnson. He's not Jeremy Corbyn. 
um, to some extent, he's trying to not be Ed Miliband while also sitting next to Ed Miliband. Um, and that's all that's all well and good if it gets you back in the game. But you can't be not, you know, if you're going to be in government, you have to be something in and of yourself, don't you? Yes, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned um, Owen Jones. You know, Owen Jones seems to hate Keir Starmer more than he hates any Tory. And part of the reason for it, I think, is that when Keir Starmer stood as Labour leader, he stood on quite a left-wing ticket, you know, inherited a lot of the Corbynista sort of left-wingery. And he's abandoned most of that. And the Tories aren't optimistic about the next general election campaign, but they are determined that they've got plenty of ammunition. This latest U-turn is something else to put in their uh, weaponry. They are confident that they can portray Keir Starmer as a shapeshifter. And not just a shapeshifter who keeps changing his views on things, but who might be at the mercy of sort of left-wing MPs in his party. It's not quite the same power as the Alex Salmond um, advert that we had a few years ago with Ed Miliband in his pocket. But the Tories want to say, you really don't know what you're going to get with Keir Starmer. He doesn't have fundamental beliefs. And if he has a small majority, it'll be those Labour MPs who are protesting today will be uh, deciding actually what happens. You will see if uh, if uh, Tony Blair's little gathering solves all of the nation's problems. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Um, uh, now, Jane, we couldn't have you on and not talk about gardening because I know uh, you're a big fan of gardening. Alan Titchmarsh has said that rewilded gardens are a catastrophe for wildlife and will reduce biodiversity. So, I mean, I've got to start mowing the whole lawn again. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be hugely controversial because at Chelsea Flower Show for the last couple of years has been all about rewilding and they obviously set the trend for everyone else, um, you know, introducing more weeds into your garden. I think what Titchmarsh is saying, actually, and he was giving evidence to the House of Lords yesterday, is that it's the way that you sell the idea. So rewilding isn't just letting your garden do nothing and, you know, the weeds will take over and his point is that if you if that happens, then you're not going to have much biodiversity because it is just basically grass that will turn into hay in the summer. He's saying that actually rewilding should be about introducing different species of plants into your garden. But also where he's controversial, and I think where this is where he's invited a lot of criticism, is that rewilding supporters are saying, well, actually, it's about it's not about so much about leaving it. It's about doing less. So not pruning as much, not cutting back your perennials in the autumn, not mowing as much. And I think there is a sort of a, I think I think his Titchmarsh's argument is that we just need to be able to tell gardeners that rewilding isn't just letting everything go. It's about actually making a bit of an effort to be more biodiverse in your garden. So I can see where the two arguments come together. Do you, have you been doing it, though? Have you been have you been doing less? I've been doing I've been doing less on my allotment. I mean, my allotment is pretty rewilded. Um, but yeah, I mean, actually, and I've got I've got um, fruit trees, but I let the sort of the grass underneath grow, and it gets quite the grass 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 gets quite tall. But in my garden, I have you know I love gardening, so I have roses and um, you know irises that need to have some space and air around them, otherwise they just won't look nice. So yeah, I yeah. do end my garden and I think gardening is not just about you know gardening is just not letting everything go because that's not gardening you have to sort of shepherd it into life yeah but you can tread more lightly and I think that's where 
that's what Titchmarsh is trying to say. It's not about just letting everything go to seed. What about you, Tim? Are you green-fingered? No. I'm uh, the opposite, I think, of Jane in this regard. I'm very good at chopping things. Uh, That's what I do for neighbours and my own uh, backyard. But um, anything I try and grow doesn't (laughs) last very long, whether indoors or outdoors. uh, Well, you have have to chop less, Tim, to let the birds (laughs) nest. That'll be why, Tim. You've cut everything to the ground again. Perhaps I could get you round. It might be Mission Impossible, though, if you saw the... uh, yeah, scene. I'd love to turn up with my secateurs. That would be great. <laughs> no, stop cutting. There's too much cutting. Stop cutting. The problem I have is I'm just a stone's throw away from Salisbury Cathedral Close with some of the most beautiful gardens. Oh, yes, yeah, so that's all like versions about the door and everything. Yeah, yeah. Now, a TikTok account has gone viral for exposing the shoddiness of Britain's new build homes. Hey guys, back again, starting off, this turf has been installed on top of soil pieces. Look at the state of these drain miters, they are shocking. This meter box is covered in excess mortar, this property's handed over, could nobody clean that just before they moved in? We got an absolutely shocking finish to the mastic sealer on this front door, look at the state of that. This new post is 31 millimeters out of plumb, that's ridiculous. We got a massive gap between the wall and the floor under these tiles, look at that. This shower wants to be a swimming pool by the looks of it, and how would you like your window? Sir, I'd like them all cracked, please. That window was cracked. This window's cracked. That window's cracked. Everything's cracked. We got an absolutely shocking finish to this patching. That is ridiculous. <laughs> well, the man behind that is John Cooper from New Home Quality Control. John joins us now. Uh, John, explain what you're doing apart from being uh, uh, incredible at saying the word ridiculous. Yeah, so we're a professional snagging company that um, UK wide, and what we predominantly do is we would visit new build homes for the customers just bought the property. Um, we'd assess the property and produce a report then of all the things that are wrong with that property, ready for the customer to hand back to the developer for rectification. And are you finding things are getting worse? Are you having to point out more stuff? Yeah, I mean, look, I've been a carpenter for many years. I'm 47 now. Um, I've been a contracts manager for the last 10 years and I've had this company for six years. And, you know, back in them days, um, it's a lot worse now than it was then. And, you know, on a daily basis, it's not getting better. That's the truth. And why is that? Is that just because uh, building companies are under so much pressure to get them up and get them out? Or do they just not care? Or is it someone else who has to pick up the problem afterwards? I think it's a a mixture of a couple of things, really. One being, um, you know, education. Education for all the younger trades coming through. I don't think they're being taught the way um, that the trade should be taught. They're getting taught for the, if you like, the house smasher way, yeah. which is get in, get it done and get out. And I think then ultimately it's down to um, sort of directors of companies and CEOs where, you know, this ultimately they're a sales company and their, their predominantly goal is to produce so many houses per year and make so much profit. Yeah, yeah. You're not really interested in, in the quality of the house for the customer. And that just is fed down the line, down to their management team. Uh, Tim and Jane, have you ever had a new build house and had this sort of issue? I'm, I'm in a fairly, I think I'm in a 90s build and the house is fine, but the, we were just talking about gardening. The garden underneath the beds is just builder's rubble. So I've had to import loads of compost, dig it in. And I think there's a sort of a, a regulation of like, is it six centimetres? Maybe your guests can tell us. And, and, yeah, 100 millimetres of topsoil. Yeah. Right, yeah, and then you can't dig, you can't dig anymore, and it is so frustrating. You find it all the time in new build gardens. It's 
it's just awful. But you know, but you know what? Protection on that point there. You know, you're saying a nineties uh, house. It's now 2023, and we're still finding mm. that issue on a daily basis. Yeah. Mm. What about you, Tim? Where do you live? Um, well, actually, my house is uh, a small little urban cottage. It's over 300 years old. So <laughs> my was... main problem is I have to duck through every <laughs> door. And, uh, um, but uh, it's, you know, brilliant construction, uh, but uh, has its problems. But uh, a, fr- a friend of mine did recently move into a, a new build. And part of what was said to them was, you know, just be grateful you've got a house at all. Wow. And you have. And I think that's the issue. People are so desperate to get on the housing ladder. I think the industry sort of thinks people will put up with whatever they are given. And uh, that's why, of course, we need to build more houses. Build more houses, yeah. John, if people want to find more of your very funny TikTok videos, what's what you called? So we're just called New Home Quality Control. Uh, We have also a YouTube channel, um, which is lengthier videos, a lot more entertaining. Yeah. And a lot more serious issues. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's, Again, that's new home quality control. Uh, John, can we get a ridiculous from you before you go? Ridiculous. Jane Merrick and Tim Montgomery there. And of course, you can read the stories that we were discussing. Just hit the links in the podcast description. To read them, you'll need a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with the head of the Met. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Trust in the police has collapsed. More than half of people say they have no confidence in them to deal with crime. Is it only one to the horror stories about what officers, especially in the Met in London, have been capable of has rocked the foundations of public faith in the criminal justice system. Sarah Everard was abducted and raped and murdered by serving police officer Wayne Cousins in 2021. The firearms officer, David Carrick, raped and assaulted 12 women. The failures in investigating the serial killer and rapist Stephen Port. The officers who took photos of two sisters who'd been stabbed to death. On and on the list goes. The racist and sexist messages exchanged by officers. Well, today, the Met Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, is launching his two-year plan 
to turn things around. We're going to speak to him in just a moment. He's live with me in the studio. If you've got questions for him, you can email me, matt at times.radio. But before that, I've been out with two officers, Chris and Danielle, in Peckham, in South London, to get some experience of what an afternoon answering 999 calls is really like, and to hear how all those allegations against serving officers has affected them and their work. Uh, yes. Something that we're not entirely sure of. It's... Someone's called in saying that there's a big disturbance and shouting coming from an address down below them, I think, or somewhere nearby. Been, probably been there for about an hour and essentially it boils down to mum and two teenage sons arguing and disagreeing about how they all live their lives. So this is Canada bus station. We've had a report of a 12-year-old young girl running off from mum. Um, she's got some sort of mental health issues, self-harm previously. She's been declared as a high-risk missing person by the operations inspector. The informant's friend has sent a video of the suspect that burgled the informant's house. The suspect is out of the location there now. The informant knows the subject. There's no one in the area. The informant's friend has eyes on the suspect who is currently at the location. Sounds right. Is this a pretty standard call? Somebody's had a mobile phone snatched out of their hands? Yeah, it's really, really common. Um, Role is just going to be just to keep an eye out if we can find suspects matching that description. Basically, it's very generic, all dark clothing, wearing a black or riding a black e-bike. We think Um, there's quite a lot that seem to happen just on the borders of Southwark, cross over into Lewisham, vice versa. Can I ask you a really stupid question about you pressing the horn? Yeah. So it just changes the um, the type of siren. So when, if we're on like a straight, like long piece of road, yeah. we generally have this one yeah. going. As you're approaching a hazard, whether that be, I don't know, a junction car that maybe hasn't seen you, set of lights or something, try and change it to the, a different one that gets someone's attention. A two young boys, 16 to 20, around 30 pounds. So what we've had today is what like a domestic reports a couple of robberies, mm-hmm. a burglary suspect, yeah. missing person, yeah. just had on the radio people fighting with knives. Is yeah. this a pretty normal afternoon? Fairly typical uh, late turn. So yeah, we start a late turn is two two to eleven, and it's pretty typical of that. And how's the you know everyone's talking about cost of living crisis? Has that affected the sort of things you called out to? I think there's a a lot more shoplifting yeah. at the moment. I mean. Any any shop you go into will tell you that they've been yeah. they've had people stealing from there every day in the last week, and that's young people, old people, and those in between. Um, Danielle, why did you want to become a police <laughs> officer, and how does it compare to what you expected? Um, I think everyone sort of joins for sort of like the fast cars, having a roll around, and just the excitement of it, going to something different every day, and it is def- that is definitely 
that is definitely what I am doing. Um, going to something different every day, you never know what you're going to turn up to. The call yeah. always comes in completely different to what you turn up to. What about you, Chris? I think you. I wanted to join. Thank you. Because probably because of that, it, it, it's never going to be the same. It's never going to be dull. Um, and I wanted something where you felt like you could make some sort of difference and help people and stuff like that, which you do. It doesn't always feel like it every day. You know, you go days where you don't feel like you've helped anyone and you've just been, you know, abused and shouted at and sworn at and <laughs> whatever else. But you do get those, you do get those calls where someone is genuinely grateful for your, for your help and, and that kind of, that sort of reminds you why you do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what about what's happened with the Met over the last few years and the revelations about some officers has that changed your opinion of doing the job has it changed the way that the public treat you is that partly why you get shouted at I think probably a combination of things probably uh, you know the stuff that's come out over the last few years of really horrendous stuff being done by police officers is kind of reflected back at us isn't it by yeah. we're, we're in a uniform and that's what people see they don't necessarily see as, uh, as as an individual you're the uniform that represents the police and the police are in the news for all these bad yeah, things yeah, yeah. um I, I don't think there's any coincidence that the last year two yeah probably year to 18 months the amount of assaults on police officers has gone through the roof since yeah. i've started um, and people feel a lot more kind of willing and able to either have a go verbally or physically and you know there's people being assaulted you know every every week if not every day it's just worrying really and have you found that as well Tanya? oh absolutely yeah like the assaults that we've sort of had like we only had one what was it like two days ago mm. and the guy's now off for the whole set um, got shot quite badly um, and it's just what, what does the whole set mean? It's a six, uh, sorry, six yeah. shifts in a row. So okay. it, I think it was the... So basically, I think it happened the, the week. Week off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, just because of this assault, so it's not like he's off sort of willy-nilly. And have either of you been surprised by the stuff that's come out? Given that everyone says it's a culture, it's not just individuals. Has it chimed at all with your experience? I mean, I don't think any of... So in, in reference to, for example... Wayne, the Wayne Cousins thing and yeah. the David Carrick I, it's absolutely shocking and like you can't expect that stuff from police officers it's, it's bad enough you know they're the sort of people that we try and stop from doing those things and, you know for that to happen from someone within the Metropolitan Police is, it makes everyone's stomach turns because you can't imagine how that's happened yeah um yeah, I think they're, they're completely sort of... I don't think there's any case you can make for that kind of being widespread across across the map. I think they're people that are, have, have made horrendous, committed horrendous crimes, you know, through completely their own choice. Um, and the people we I work with on a daily basis are good people who are just trying to do a, do a good job and do what they can to help people, you know? that's I think that's why everyone comes to work. Um, yeah, it's, it's sad that, that those things have happened because they're absolutely appalling. <laughs> yeah. And what about you, Daniel? As a woman as well in the force, does it chime at all with your experience? 
Oh no, I, I mean, there's all of this stuff in the news about like sexism stuff. I've never ever um, experienced any of that. Like, my team's incredible. Like, they're always so supportive of everything that I do, whether that's like personal or within within the job. Like, everyone's so supportive. So I wouldn't say it's ever yeah. ever something that I've experienced. Um, and I think for the rest of the girls on the team as well, it's, it's the same. Like, you know. Yeah, so I've, I've never really experienced anything like that. So that's what happened when I went out with uh, the two officers, Chris and Danielle, in Peckham and Lewisham, uh, crossing over the borders, they were saying there, uh, yesterday afternoon. Thanks to uh, Chris and Danielle for, for looking after me. Well, listening to that was Sir Mark Rowley. He's the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police and joins me in the studio now. Morning, Mark. Hi, Matt. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, it's, 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 it's still morning. It's been still a long morning. day already. One of the striking things uh, that I thought, uh, listening to Chris, who I went out with, was when he said it wasn't a coincidence that there'd been a spike in assaults on police, given everything we've heard, whether it's David Carrick or Wayne Cousins, over the last couple of years. How does that make you feel about the force that you run, that some of your own staff, essentially, have undermined faith in the police so much that they just they now think it's, the public think it's OK to attack your officers? Uh, it's, it's awful, isn't it? I, I mean, Chris and Danielle, I, I, don't think, I, I don't know if I've met them, I don't think I have, but they are just so typical of the tens of thousands of great men and women we have in, in the Met who sort of, they're good, decent people. You can tell from that call, can't you, to um, trying hard to do a difficult job. And they've been sort of catastrophically undermined by um, the behaviour of a minority that um, the Met, in hindsight, over many years, we haven't been tough enough at protecting our integrity and we're sorting that out, but the price is paid on a day-to-day basis. And even though... The majority of people in London still trust the police. That trust is heavily dented and we're going to have to work hard to turn that round again. But with great people like that, I know we can do it. And we're talking today in the context of we've launched our new Met for London plan, which is exactly about how we're going to rebuild that trust. It's quite a balancing act that you've got, trying to balance showing the public that you understand how angry they are, while also not attacking the Chris's and Danielle's of... The officers, and so, but in a way, to, to reassure one, it, it, there's a risk you put too much on the other. I've, I, as a leadership challenge, uh, which is what you're asking, really, I found yeah. it immensely difficult. I've got tens of thousands of great people in an organisation of forty five thousand, but clearly, I've got hundreds we've got to sort out, and it's trying to strike that balance the whole time, and sort of supporting them because some of the things that come out in recent work is of equipment and training there's things that those officers need better and we're trying to sort those things out for them the pay issue has been very topical and i was quite public about saying we've got it on a the pay review body last week and we did that and we found an extra thousand pounds london allowance to sort of support officers so i'm doing everything i can do to support the chris's and danielle's whilst trying to take a cancer out one side of the organization you talk about that cancer. It's clearly we've had some very high-profile cases, but there are more coming. There were cases yes. in the courts. Uh, there were cases still being investigated. Is the situation with the Met going to get worse before it gets better? So I've been honest that this is the biggest doubling down on standards probably since Robert Mark was commissioner in the 1970s. Um, and there are two or three cases a week in court. And we're sacking removing officers um, quicker than um, for, for decades that's a really depressing thing to talk about as commissioner, but I've had to put standards on the top line. I talk about more trust, less crime and high standards in the plan. 
standards shouldn't be on the top line. That should be sorted. But because we've made a mess of dealing with a small number of toxic and dangerous individuals, I have to show the public that we're serious about that. But at the same time, of supporting officers like Chris and Danielle in the amazing work they do, trying to give them better equipment, better leadership, and organising ourselves better so that their work is manageable and that we're closer to communities. And what's the... Uh, what what are the t- the tests, if you like, that you will be judged by? Because clearly, you know, your predecessor, Cressida Dick, stood down after uh, Sadiq Khan lost confidence in her leadership. Mm-hmm. What are the things that you should be judged by? What does more trust, less crime, high standards look like? And do you resign? What point do you resign if you haven't met them? Uh, so, uh, in terms of what does what are the marks of success? So, um, this is to talk through in the plan in detail. But do you, as a Londoner, have local officers who you recognise, who are looking after your patch, who understand what the priorities are locally and are making a difference there, tackling crime and antisocial behaviour. Um, do you, um, if you call the police for help, do you get a good service? So as a victim, are you satisfied with the response you get? Um, are we continuing to make progress in bringing volume crime like burglary and vicar crime down? Are we succeeding in keeping serious crime down? with critical predatory offences like rape, domestic abuse, sexual assault, child abuse, are we bringing more offenders to justice and are we reducing repeat victimisation? And in terms of some of the internal measures, um, are we more quickly and effectively getting through some of the misconduct and standards issues? So there's a range of measures that sort of captured there and across all of that, are we tackling discrimination in the organisation and and discrimination and disparity? So those are the measures that are in the plan um, and... Um, uh, the mayor will be holding me to account on those in public meetings, and that's sort of that's that's his role, and that's my role. I came back into policing from five years in retirement because I care about this, and um, I, it's because of the Chris's and Danielle's, and I know that um, we can bounce back and we can sort this out. But I'm not going to pretend it's easy; it's going to happen overnight. Given what I've requested, Dick, and given the reason you came back into it, is your job on the line if you don't deliver on those things? I, I, I don't think in those terms because I don't I don't entertain I don't entertain failure. This is this is bloody hard. But you met two determined frontline officers. I've got many people like that who are up for this challenge, and we will succeed. It will it will be it will be a bumpy journey. It won't be perfect, but we will succeed because we want to. And last night I was launching our plan in Peckham, so we're doing thirty two boroughs and meeting in each community, meeting in Peckham in Southwark last night, and the community care deeply about wanting a positive relationship with the police, regardless of the fact mm. it hasn't always been perfect. We're at Damalola Taylor Centre, and of course he was murdered in 2000, as, so tragically as a 10-year-old boy. His father, Richard, was there last night and he spoke, and he spoke very powerfully to both the police in the room and the community members, young people in the room, that um, we, need strong, we need greater trust between police and communities. And his words were, because if we don't, the only people who benefit from that are the criminals. Yeah, um, you touched on, uh, you mentioned discrimination. One of the things that your report today says, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, or a member of London's LGBT plus community, whether you're disabled or from a black or ethnic minority background, we've heard the concerns you, we, you've raised. We're sorry and we'll change. But Louise Casey, when she carried out her review into the Met, she went further and said the Met was institutionally racist, sexist, and homophobic. You don't accept the phrase institutional, but at what point? It, do you think the Met could ever be institutionally racist, sexist, and homophobic? Because it, it seems pretty bad. And it just, lots of people will look at it and think, well, why not accept that that's so what's it, the, it's, the case? The, the challenge about that word is it means different things to different people. I'm not sort of 
if you read um, the diagnosis that Louise Casey puts underneath that, she had four bullet points. I accept all those bullet points. I accept her analysis. It's just, I'm going to be talking about the Met month after month for the next five years. And I'm not going to use a word that I know means different things to different people. To some people, it means everybody in the organisation is racist. To other people, it means um, it's just about systems and policies and there's every shade in between. So it's an imprecise word. It also kicks around quite heavily politically. I need to use precise language. Yes, we have those problems in the organisation. Yes, it's more than a few bad apples that we've failed into systemically to, to, to root it out. And that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to be judged on action. So do we, are we seen to bear down on standards and win back that public confidence that we are ruthless about protecting our integrity? That's getting rid of the negative. But the thing that will build trust... That's going to get rid of the negative thing. Build yeah. trust is the quality of policing, and that's what you were discussing yesterday with Chris and Danielle, and, and seeing in the raw. I want to read you a quote that Louise Casey gave to the Times in an interview a few weeks ago. She, uh, when she was pressed on this, the, the question of the uh, using the word institutional, she threw her hands up in exasperation and said, "The level of delusion in this building. I don't know what happens when they come through the front door and they get into the lift." She calls the drinking water house met and says that instead of fluoride, its ingredient is optimism. It's like they're drunk on house met, they can't see anything outside, and these are potentially good people. Do you feel like you're drunk on optimism? I'm not drunk on optimism at all. I don't think anyone's accused me of that. Um, I've been pretty brutal about the scale of the challenges. Um, I'm not, I'm not um, uh, standing away from those in, to, one, to any degree whatsoever. Um, we are going to succeed as an organisation. Uh, we've got many good people... Our plan New Met for London built on Louise's recommendations, things from other bodies, our own findings, feedback from tens of thousands of members of the public. Um, and it's about changing an organisation so that it become, it starts in communities and work backwards from there rather than starting at Scotland Yard. So absolutely not drunk on it. I came back into policing because I care deeply about this. And, um, and we must succeed because if we don't, it's the criminals who gain and we are going to succeed. It struck me, I was astonished by this, you can't actually sack an officer. It's completely bonkers. So we have. So your listeners won't know generally, everything they should do, that police officers, most of the arrangements are called police regulations. It's not normal employment law. Um, they're sort of complicated and Byzantine. Some of it makes sense, but some of it's a bit extreme. And one part of it is, um, in many situations, the decision whether an officer gets sacked or not is effectively outsourced to a separate lawyer. So um, even... If so here am I being challenged by you to say, yeah. sort this out, perfectly fair. And I'm saying, yeah, and so we, we come to a view, actually, all this evidence says this person should no longer be a police officer. We have to persuade an independent lawyer. And in many cases, they've said, no, you've got to keep them. So I'm like, but we can't use them. They're just not trustworthy or they're, they're, not, they're, I know they're dishonest or they're not trustworthy with women. And so um, are, there, are there officers that you'd like to have got rid of completely. who are still officers because of this process? Yeah, exactly. And so we end up having to put them on restrictions to minimise the damage they can do. It's completely ridiculous. So there's that fact. There's also an issue about um, if an officer fails a revetting, it, the process to remove them from the organisation is not exactly clear. Um, I spoke in my first couple of months about this with the sort of um, Prime Minister and the Home Secretary. They commissioned a review at the start of the year, which um, I think was intended to report a couple of months ago. And I'm I'm hoping that when it does report, they will get on and change the regulations. So they're dragging their heels on this. Um, I sort of I'm sure there's all sorts of technical reasons it's taking time, um, but. I sort of, I'm in a hurry to sort yeah. this out, and people like Chris and Danielle want it sorted out quickly. So 
if they can give us a better levers in the regulations to do it, that will help me go faster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about a couple of specific issues which have come up uh, when people have been sending in questions. Uh, shoplifting. Uh, Chris was talking about how they've definitely seen enough <laughs> tick in that. Maybe that's the sort of thing you see when uh, inflation is so high. At the weekend, the boss of John Lewis, Sharon White, said that criminals have a licence to shoplift because so so few uh, incidents have been investigated properly, they don't lead to anything. Um, a licence to shoplift? That's not, there's not a licence to commit any sort of crime. Of course, we do prioritise crime and we spend more time investigating stabbings than we do shoplifting, um, but nothing's licensed. Uh, what about drugs? Um, you've talked about people being uh, found uh, using cabinets, being put on community programmes rather than facing criminal convictions. There's a story in the papers today about how uh, cocaine use in some cities are up a quarter. If, if it's not a licence to shoplift, is it a licence to take recreational drugs? Uh, definitely, definitely not. We will deal with it. And if it's an individual user, then the balance between police intervention and sort of medical interventions, uh, uh, I think people understand there's a balance between the two. In terms of the drugs market, though, the drugs trade is really dangerous. Um, we've stepped up our work on what people will know as county lines, the people selling drugs using phones and often using vulnerable teenagers to run the drugs for them. The people we're arresting behind the county lines are men of violence, and it some extraordinary statistics. The people we're arresting sort of week in, week out, several people a week for this, they are, one in ten of them have been arrested for murder previously, wow. one in six have been previously arrested for firearms offences, one in three for grievous bodily harm, and it's nearly 90% have got previous records for violence or weapons of some degree. So these are the people running the drugs trade in London and coercing teenagers um, into, running the, into moving the drugs around. So taking them off the streets and putting them in prison, sort of effectively rescuing those kids from, uh, from, that, from that activity and sort of working on their safeguarding with local authorities is absolutely critical. So we're absolutely serious about drugs. The right sentence for a drugs user is laid down by government and sort of interventions that take people out of crime seems to make sense to me. Um, it, not that long ago, when I've asked you about uh, Extinction Rebellion, they've also been replaced by their friends at Just Stop Oil. Uh, they've, you know, we've seen disruption again in the capital yesterday, slow marches and 14 locations. Tory Deputy Chairman Lee Anderson told you to get out of your ivory tower and deal with them. Um, should people be more like Ben Stokes? Did you think he did a good job of wrestling that protester to the ground? Uh, I think it was best, wasn't it? Johnny Bairstow who carried Bester, him off the, yeah, carried him John, off. Yeah, carried yeah, him yeah. off the pitch. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry to correct the journalist. No, no, it was good. It was a good point. <laughs> it was Johnny uh, Bairstow. So, um, I find JSO massively frustrating, like all Londoners do. Um, if people want to protest, there are lots of ways to protest lawfully, um, but the law is really clear. You you're not entitled to protest to the point where you cause serious disruption to other people going about their daily life. And so, I mean, I think there were more than 14 in the end yesterday. I think those were the stats at the start of the day in terms of JSO. We had that many slow marches, I think, in the first hour or two of yesterday. I think 13 out of those 14, we got managed to get to the scene very quickly and they were off the road within a few minutes of police arrival. The other one, I think there were sort of several tens of people there and we made about 20 arrests and that took a bit longer. So we are sort of determinedly serious to clear this. Um, I just wish people would protest in line with the law rather than going beyond it. And of course, there's another impact for Londoners out of this besides the immediate disruption. I had 550 police officers yesterday doing this work on JSO. They should have been working in communities fighting crime yeah. rather than dealing with this, this, this nonsense because people won't protest in line with the law. We've had quite a lot of questions as well about the, uh, the thin blue line badge. Uh, this was, uh, officers were banned from wearing it. 
particularly during Pride marches, but during other things as well. Explain what the issue is, because officers I've spoken to say, you know, it's just a way of marking, remembering officers who've fallen in the, in the course of duty. So, as police officers, we have to be really careful about being without fear or favour, and I'm yeah. sure you'd agree with that. Um, our policy lays down only two or three things that people are allowed to wear routinely. Obviously, one's the poppy at Remembrance Day, as an example. There is a um, there is a a police um, a memorial badge that officers can wear to remember colleagues. The issue with this badge, and it's none of it's it's not so black and white. It's not very it's not a straightforward thing. For some people, it's about um, um, the politics of pay cuts and um, and sort of budgets for policing. For some people, it's about police heroism. Um, it also has a tinge of link in the United States, the equivalent to extreme right-wing groups. And so the challenge of any badge, you end up with something which means different things to different yeah. people. And I'm not going to... St- I don't want to stop officers from sort of remembering their, their sort of colleagues who've, who've suffered, and that's why we do have a police memorial badge. But I'm very cautious about a badge which means different things to different people because then if someone interprets that like the American and like being linked to the far right, then that that doesn't help us either. So I understand why officers are frustrated about it, but it's quite a complicated issue. And and if you saw officers wearing all sorts of politicised badges, you'd be asking me hard questions about that for lots of good reasons. Um, one final question that someone sent in. Uh, has he actually done any police work? Which I sort of know the answer to, but it's an interesting question, particularly given that... Yeah. Uh, do you miss it? Do you... do you Which I, did you prefer? Sitting in an office, making all these decisions, being accused of being drunk on house met, or, or whatever <laughs> it's called... Um, so I'm not quite sure what the hazmat thing is. So yes, I I joined policing and I started walking the streets of Birmingham in um, a long time ago, 19, <laughs> 1987. Unfortunately, which shows how shows how old I old I am. So I've sort of I've I've worked on the streets of Birmingham. I've been a detective as a sort of as a detective sergeant. I've done practical day to day policing, and I've got the scars to show for it. I that's I'm I'm passionate about it, and candidly, I. Um, patrolling out of Digbeth Police Station in Birmingham, which might mean something to some of your listeners, patrolling out of Digbeth Police Station in Birmingham, I enjoyed what I did then as much as I enjoy the privilege of being Commissioner now and trying to make, just as just as Chris and Danielle were talking earlier about the job being sort of exciting and interesting and worthwhile, I find the same thing in this job as I did patrolling out of Digbeth Police Station 36 years ago. Do you still sometimes go out now? Um, I to I go out to police stations, meet officers regularly. Yeah. Occasionally, go out on patrol. Yeah. Um, I sort of I'm I'm not a sharper as good as they are. As <laughs> I don't pretend to. Say. So so sort of, and there's a there's a danger that sort of um, I know a senior officer goes out, it ends up being a bit like dad dancing. So, so if you're not if you're not careful. So um, Chris and Danielle are doing it day in and day out in a fantastic. You're, 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 you're not leaping over fences like you used to. No, no, I, 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 I run an awful lot to keep oh, okay. fit. So I challenge quite. I can still pass the. Um, highest fitness test in the organisation for our most advanced firearms officers. So I keep myself healthy, um, um, but my job has different demands to what exactly those right. guys guys are doing. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let me know what you think. Email me matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, is goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.